The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. In the studio, we have former Western Victoria MP Simon Ramsey. Good morning. Good morning, Mitchell, and good morning to your listeners. It's very exciting being in the studio rather than on the mobile phone. So it's good, it's good to, to see you. And it means a lot, actually, to have people in the studio because uh, doing your show uh, week in, week out with only people on the phone, it's like doing Zoom meetings back to back constantly, and it's not quite the same. That's true. And aren't we sick of Zoom meetings? Seriously, I have uh, a couple, and I'm sure you have more each week, and they go on and on. No one knows quite when to cut it off. Um, And more and more people come on wanting to speak, and it does sort of elongate the whole um, time that we have, uh, perhaps not just uh, on Zoom meetings. And it only takes one person with a bad microphone to ruin the whole meeting for everyone else, I've found. That's correct. And, of course, some have mutes, and some don't have mutes, and some have video, and some don't. So it does take... um, a while to organise, but nevertheless, that's the uh, the medium we have to use at the moment. So, John Barillaro, this uh, was announced just in the news at 10 o'clock. Um, he has decided to resign, and there'll be a party meeting, I heard, on Wednesday. I don't know if he's resigning from his seat. I'm just trying to find that out, or whether it's just from the leadership. But what's going on up there? Well, I don't know. I must say, I only heard about that this morning, too, as it came through the news feed. Um, interesting. Um, see, Andrew Constance has also indicated that uh, he'll vacate uh, his seat as well to stand for a federal seat. Uh, so obviously Gladys has sort of um, almost initiated a bit of a, a purge within the coalition ranks, hasn't she, in respect to some of her closest allies wanting now to look at other opportunities other than the, uh, the New South Wales state government. Mm. Um, what is it about New South Wales where it seems like they're more inclined to resign up there? I mean, you've had three Liberal premiers resign due to ICAC, Nick Greiner, Barry O'Farrell, and now Gladys Berejiklian, but also on the Labor side, they've gone through a few opposition leaders there, and uh, the people that have resigned, it's been mostly due to bad behaviour or not meeting community expectations. It hasn't been due to alleged corruption. Um, but is it just the fact that ICAC is a much bigger presence in relation to politics up there or are we better behaved down here in Victoria? What do you think? Well, I think New South Wales politics has always been, uh, you know, rough and tumble uh, and ICAC is very different to the other anti-corruption bodies that we have uh, across the country. In fact, I was on the parliamentary committee that advised the changes in legislation for IBAC in Victoria and we covered the world actually, Mitchell, looking at a whole lot of countries from Hong Kong to Ireland uh, to the UK to France, uh, right up to Latvia, uh, a number of different countries about the way that they um, have sort of initiated and incorporated their anti-corruption bodies. And I think we have a very good model in Victoria. Needs tweaking, but very different to ICAC, who has much more teeth and much more power and respect how they can reference uh, politicians, judges, um, those uh, in very influential uh, places uh, to front the um, the body. I think in Gladys's case, and we don't know all the details, but it would appear she's had some briefings from ICAC, which might suggest that... Um, her, uh, you know, her um, uh, activities with her ex-partner may well um, have some long-term issues and problems for her and she's decided to take the decision to stand aside, in fact, stand down and exit Parliament altogether. So you'd have to 
expect there will be um, some, uh, you know, some substance in some of the allegations that have been made in respect to uh, certainly her ex-partner's involvement, but also how much she knew and how much she didn't know and whether that was uh, in conflict with her position as the Premier. Yes, we'll find that out. It's got to go through all of those processes. But she did say previously that there's no room for anyone in her cabinet who was under investigation by uh, ICAC. I don't know when she exactly said that, but uh, now that she's under investigation by ICAC, you've got to live by the standards you set for others, don't you? Well, that's true. And she set the standards. uh, And, of course, she had nowhere to manoeuvre, given uh, she was being referred to to an investigation by ICAC. So um, there's that issue. And, of course, the other issue, which I'm sure she made, I well regret is that she at one point said of course the pork barrelling in providing grants and monies to um, liberal held seats particularly uh, was you know sort of normal practice now um, and I also think of the pork barrelling that went on in relation to the sports rorts and others in the federal arena is maybe why the current government is a little bit slow to introduce their own anti-corruption body um, federally to look at you know what Perhaps uh, as Gladys seizes the norm in in pork barrelling some grant monies into seats that want to be held by the the current government. So uh, she's got that against her as well. So I don't I don't know where it's going to go. But certainly a lot of people have um, spoke well of her and the way that she handled the pandemic as Premier of New South Wales. Uh, and certainly the um, the times that I've seen her, I thought she. Um, uh, perform very well and, and provide a sort of a, a you know a high degree of honesty and integrity in the way that she was going about her business. At the end of the pandemic, there'll hopefully be a full investigation, possibly even royal commission that will look at each state and each uh, government's response to COVID. So we can't necessarily say who's been handling it better at this time because it just changes so much. But it would seem, from what I've observed, is that New South Wales has taken a more nuanced approach to restrictions. For example, doing a by LGAs, whereas here in Victoria the approach has been very blunt uh, locked down everyone from Mildura to Malakuta, regardless of um, where you are and all that sort of thing with exactly the same restrictions as in Melbourne. This whole phenomenon of just locking down areas like the Murable Shire it's a very recent thing up until now, it's been very blunt. So that's been a very different philosophical approach in New South Wales. Yeah, very different strategies. I think um, despite the fact that many point to New South Wales as being the gold standard in pandemic response. They've had some significant problems with contact tracing of late. It's good to see the trending of uh, transmissions is going down in New South Wales. It was very high. Uh, deaths are up though, uh, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, we talk about our hotel quarantine issues that we had in Victoria. Of course, they had the Ruby Princess. They've had a number of incursions um, of transmissions from New South Wales into Victoria, which created our, our latest restrictions and lockdowns. So it's not a, a gold standard up there, but nevertheless, I think um, they've been less brutal in New South Wales in how they've uh, placed restrictions on their uh, constituencies, whereas in Victoria, you know, Daniel Andrews has taken a very hard approach to lockdown, lockdown hard, and then hopefully be able to open up. So uh, quite different, but nevertheless, we seem to be very similar. They're up a bit on vaccinations, but I I note we're improving our second vaccination um, rate, which hopefully will reach that 70 to 80% targets, you know, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Just on John Barillard, I've read his statement. It's a little bit ambiguous. 
because uh, he talks about, you know, standing down, doesn't equivocally say until the very last line that uh, he's going to be talking to the um, the Speaker about setting up a by-election for his seat of Monero. So he is standing down from his seat. But uh, if you read the earlier parts of the media release, it just wasn't made clear. It was more like he was standing down from the leadership. So he's quitting Parliament altogether. I don't know who the big contenders are in the Nationals up there in New South Wales, but he's been an interesting character over the years, hasn't he? He has, and actually I thought he's been performing um, quite well the times I've heard him speak and uh, some of the sort of policy um, debates that have been had. I've, I found him to be, um, uh, you know, quite, um, uh, I suppose, wide-ranging in, in his views and consensual in that, you know, he seems to be towing the party line, whereas you've sort of got even Barnaby Joyce now is mellowed to a point where he keeps referring uh, in his statements, well, of course, I've got to refer that to the the party or the party room in respect to commentary he can make, particularly about climate change and those more contentious issues. So he's suddenly mellowed. But I thought John had mellowed as well. But don't you love the Nats? Of course, when all the headlines are about the Liberal Party, they can't help themselves. <laughs> They've got to get in the act. Mm, they certainly do. Um, so it's going to be a complete change there in New South Wales. It was interesting talking to Andy Medic in the first part of the program because he said he's concerned of the replacement, Dominic Perrottet, that he's of and... Uh, and he used this term, the far right. And I suppose when you look at the way that people have been behaving on Twitter over the last few weeks, this Gladys Berejiklian thing didn't come out of nowhere and that if you read Twitter, people were talking about ICAC for a few weeks leading up to this point. So I wasn't entirely surprised like some people were on the weekend. But uh, the people that were calling for her to be out may have done themselves a bit of a disservice because you presumably have a politician in place now that's more disagreeable to their views. Yeah, well, I must say I don't know uh, the man very well um, uh, in respect to Dominic's. Uh, well, we, we don't know yet. I understand there's still a bit of argy-bargy going on in the ranks. I see they had to wheel out poor old John Howard over the weekend to endorse yes. uh, Dominic. But um, uh, obviously, uh, strong Christian values. I think he's very young to have six children, 34 or something, so... Well, a bit older, maybe a bit older. Um, I don't know, I don't know. Just when you said 34, I better just check that. But <laughs> I that's six I'll, children of 34, that's I would have thought he would have um, very similar values and um, philosophies as Scott Morrison, given they're both from strong Christian He's backgrounds. 39. 39, sorry. Um, still, still very young. Still young for yeah. six children, yeah. And... My understanding is that um, Scott Morrison was very dependent on having a good relationship with Gladys and riding on the back of her success to confirm, you know, a number of those more marginal seats in New South Wales come the federal election. So he would have been very concerned about the fact that Gladys has uh, seen fit to step down um, in, in light of the ICAC investigation referrals. But I suspect maybe with Dominic, he feels that, you know, he does have a partner in crime in respect to their similar ideologies, I suspect. Uh, and the pain mightn't be as bad. But look, it's, it's certainly going to be very um, uh, upsetting for, uh, you know, the federal campaign, which I understand is on a bit of a roll already as we speak in respect to maybe early next year going to the polls and a change in leadership in the middle of a pandemic and someone as popular as Gladys will certainly throw a spanner in the works. Now, in terms of the federal election situation, uh, a few months ago, some people said, oh, maybe they'll go to a snap election at the end of this year, but it's probably just not going to be possible, particularly with the lockdowns and how people go out and actually vote in this current situation with all of the restrictions. So I've got a feeling that next year is more likely. I don't know what you think, but maybe around a March, April, early May at the very latest. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I'm hearing a lot of chatter about March, but, I mean, there's a number of things that really need to happen uh, prior to that. Of course, there's the uh, pre-selections for candidates to be put in place. There's the Senate tickets to be organised. There's the vacancy with Senator Scott Ryan now, which I understand uh, the administration committee, the Liberal Party may well fill fairly shortly. Um, and uh, there's, as I said, the a number of Senate pre-selections that have to take place before we go to the polls. There's a lot of things to happen, and we, obviously we've got the pandemic reaching a fairly significant um, time frame through that October-November to try and remove some of the restrictions we're having to live under and then allow um, sort of uh, the opportunity for the respective political parties to be able to get their their Canada or their um, delegates in place to have these pre-selections and ticket Senate ticket elections. So I'd be surprised if it goes before Christmas, Mitchell. I would have thought you'd probably rise somewhere around March, April next year. They'll be perhaps banking on maybe a bit of normality returning, particularly to Victoria and New South Wales, which may happen in November. Maybe international travel might come back online and by then people will have forgotten about COVID or the lockdowns and uh, the voting patterns somewhat return to normal. Well, I think that's true, and I suspect that's why Scott Morrison's pushing the international borders being uh, lifted, so uh, some of the angst of international travel uh, will be taken out pre the polls, and also puts pressure on the states, of course, to open up their borders, which we have the three Labor premiers resisting at the moment. So there'll be a lot of argy-bargy between the feds and the state Labor uh, premiers uh, to remove restrictions, and I suspect as long as their popularity uh, is as it is, and it seems all three Labor states are, um, have very popular premiers at the moment and polling well, uh, that uh, Scott Morrison's got his work cut out to try and sort of wedge those uh, premiers um, to uh, sort of just hold some of those federal seats in those states but as uh, gain some. And a candidate for Corio needs to be pre-selected as well. That's true. Uh, I haven't um, I haven't heard of uh, any names there. While you talked about anti-medic, I, I suddenly noticed that he's vacated my old office just out the back here. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, looking very empty and um, forlorn, so he must have disappeared somewhere else. Okay, we better find out where his new office is. Yeah. And that was an interesting location, wasn't it? Because you had a few other businesses alongside that I don't know if they fit in with your political views or not. But Everyone said uh, when, when I was uh, the member and had that office, they said, where are you situated? And I said, well, I'm wedged between the, the, the bottle shop, um, the ETU, <laughs> and um, the strip club across the road. So it was... Um, and, of course, directly from Centrelink, where I used to get quite a lot of the federal issues from those that couldn't get Centrelink payments coming straight across to my office. So, um, Parole Tracy, who was looking at the front desk there, was feeling a lot of issues that were federal issues that we couldn't really help but just signpost them to uh, the respective members, federal members. But, yeah, we do have uh, a need to uh, seek candidates uh, for Corio. Uh, in respect to the federal poll and obviously we've got Stephanie Asher as our Liberal candidate in Corangamite on the hustings and um, we've got some Senate vacancies as well to fill so it'll be an interesting time. Um, she's meant to be joining the program tomorrow, Stephanie Asher, hopefully she does um, but it does seem to be a bit of a quiet start to her campaign so far. Pretty well orchestrated, I think. I think people are looking, uh, or certainly those um, who are looking after her, uh, making sure there is a definite distinction between her previous mayoral duties and her role as a candidate. And 
uh, I think um, we've seen now that they've been successful in sort of the separation of those roles and I expect we'll see more of Stephanie on the hustings over the next few weeks. And Trent Sullivan seems to be stepping up and really doing a lot of the mayoral things. Yeah, so I reckon Trent has really stepped up, stepped up in that role from all sides of politics within the council. It seems that they're happy with the work that he's been doing in uh, that leadership role. I do have a bone to pick with uh, Trent though in respect to the council, not just Trent, that uh, this proposal of rate payers paying for new footpaths around the Ocean Grove precinct. I fired up and fired a few uh, torpedoes into the City Council saying it's an absolute disgrace that you would ask ratepayers to kick in $500 each um, to pay for uh, new footpaths around the precinct where it should be coming out of the normal budgetary expenditure of council. This is so what, are the, pays. what are the footpaths there now? Is it sort of just a dirt track and they're upgrading it or is some, it just old concrete? Yeah, well, some don't even have footpaths which was uh, you know a, a problem associated with not having uh, appropriate uh, infrastructure. Um, mapping in those new suburbs. There's some older suburbs where the concrete is actually dangerous and hasn't mm. been replaced. Um, but to ask ratepayers to pay for new footpaths, which should be the responsibility of council, um, I think is uh, something that will set a very dangerous precedent in the future where council could ask for any number of uh, infrastructure projects that ratepayers should pay as special user pay levies, which I just think is not on. Well, uh, Trent or someone from the council is meant to be coming on tomorrow, so I'll ask them about that. You do that, Mitchell. <laughs> and in terms of the state election, has there been any talk about that obviously being held next November, but any thoughts about who might be running in different seats around our region? No, I haven't heard of a lot. I have heard potentially a council down in the borough of Queenscliff might be interested in Ballerine, but I'm not saying any names. Uh, I've heard even a, a ex-member of South Barwon may well have an interest in uh, running for that seat again. Um, uh, I can't tell you much more. Uh, it would be interesting to see, um, and it'll have to happen soon too, those pre-selections mm, will need to take place so. uh, once we have this, the Fed sorted. But um, look, I, I'm hoping there'll be, as I've always said, uh, people putting their hands up to show an interest in serving the community in public service and hopefully have a strong field of candidates to do that. Now, swimming pools, just with this pool, I don't know if the, uh, the pool on the Northern Ballerine is in your sights, but um, Senator Henderson was talking about it and people were saying, why is it not an indoor pool? Libby Kirker wants it to be an indoor pool, etc. And Senator Henderson said, well, that's going to be the next stage, stage two. But then when I looked at the initial map that the council did of the precinct, it didn't really look like there was much room to build an adjacent indoor pool next to the outdoor pool. It's got an outdoor pool, it's got the changing facilities and all that, and then a lot of trees around it. I didn't see any obvious spot where you could just plonk an indoor pool at some stage down the track. I don't know what you thought. No, I remember this discussion well because I canvassed with the community when I was the member for Western Victoria, um, uh, you know, what sort of infrastructure they wanted. And certainly a pool was one in their sights, not for all, but for many. And what sort of pool was really up to the council at the time because they were doing a feasibility study. But it's interesting, we've got the North Aquatic Centre hub, which is having, you know, a, a... uh, hydrology and, and pools. We've got the Surf Coast Council now, I understand, where the Fed's committed $20 million to it now being an indoor 50-metre pool. And I seem to remember the uh, Senator Henderson saying at the time that it had to be an outdoor um, 
pool or you wouldn't get the money. That mm. was the sort of threat to Surf Coast. Well, Surf Coast have obviously said, well, that's not going to happen. Um, we're putting an indoor 50-metre pool in. And now I understand for North Bellarine is that um, the council have decided to refer it back for community input again to see if, in fact, uh, an indoor pool is more preferable. I can see the feds are wanting to wedge the state in committing money, which they haven't at this stage, to the pool in North um, Bellarine at the Drysdale Sports Precinct. Um, and that's probably why I think the feds are calling on the state to commit to an indoor pool. But I'm not yet sure we're actually going to have an outdoor 50 metre pool in North Bellarine unless the feds again use that um, uh, sort of big stick approach and say we're not getting the money unless it's an outdoor pool which is what I've heard from the feds at the moment so it'll be interesting to see how that whether the community wins out and says no we want an indoor 50 metre pool or uh, the feds stick by and say well you're not getting the money unless it's outdoor and or the community latest community engagement that the council are doing says that yes we want an outdoor pool and maybe down the track the state will have to kick in for an indoor pool um, but the, most governments don't like investing in pools because they cost a lot of money mm. and lose like, money they don't lose make money, a profit no hardly any pool makes money mm. and uh, of course, the cost of managing those pools per year to the rate pays is significant. I think up to half a million dollars for those twenty, thirty million dollar pools. So, it'll be interesting to see how that runs out, uh, Mitchell. One thing I never see—I don't know if you see this—is an actual side by side comparison where they say this is what it'll cost, uh, both the building or the capital cost, and then the ongoing running cost for it to be indoor. This is what it will cost to be an outdoor. You never see that exactly side by side. And uh, I don't know. There's a few people out there trying to perhaps muddy the waters or obfuscate a bit about. Um, what it actually costs. Yeah, well, that's true. It'd be interesting to know if the council's done some budget, um, the City of Greater Geelong and Surf Coast, on the costs of managing these pools, but also the heating. I mean, if you're having an outdoor pool, you can only assume it's going to be heated for the best part of the year. What does the cost of heating an outdoor pool cost as against heating an indoor pool? You'd imagine it would cost more because it uses you can imagine that more heat. heat just going yeah. up into the atmosphere, yeah. Um, and who benefits from an outdoor pool as against from an indoor pool? I, I, I haven't seen some rationale between any of the sort of funders about... Um, those sort of benefits but nevertheless I guess if the funding particularly from the feds which is more significant is tied to outdoor pools that's what the council will have to negotiate with. Well finally lockdowns and vaccines how are you feeling about how we're running here in Victoria are you confident that we'll be one state again by early November or is there going to be some delay that'll kick the can down the road a bit further? Well, I noticed the um, the transmissions or the, the positives are going up, which is not a good sign. Um, despite you know the lockdown in Melbourne, I think we're now got the mantle of being the uh, most long down city lockdown city in the world. Um, just past Greenwood Aries by one day, I think now. And I think um, we've definitely had almost the most number of lockdowns in the world, possibly even here in yeah. Geelong, um, with eight. Because if you look at Buenos Aires, because I looked them up to see why they were in lockdown, and it was more one big, long, continuous lockdown, whereas here it's been just in and out like a roller coaster. Correct. No, I think that's really unsettling to small business, and, and I think the feedback now is they just cannot... Uh, financially and physically and mentally handle another lockdown. I think Daniel Andrews has basically said that in his press releases. So I think November 5th, 6th is the D-Day for uh, removing the lockdowns. I agree with the opposition. I can't see a point with curfews. I, from what I'm hearing from all the experts, curfews 
not working. I think uh, certainly allowing greater capacities outside is important. Airboard transmission is less outside, as we've learned, and greater ventilation inside for schools will all help. But uh, the businesses I've spoken to around here say, look, financially to have 10 people in an indoor restaurant or service area is not viable for them. So that has got to change and change quickly. Larger outdoor areas, I think those people trying to sort of manage weddings and um, other other activities need to get some confidence and surety that the date will be November 5th to open it up. And that's what everyone's working towards. And I can't see that Daniel Andrews can back off. But um, it'll be interesting times in how he sort of works up to that. But the vaccination rates look good. And I'm just hoping and praying that we all do get double vaccinated by or the biggest portion of the population will probably hopefully only get uh, perhaps uh, maybe 90% of the population. That'll be the best we could hope for, but mm. it happens sooner than later, and certainly before November 5th for the 80% double jab. I do know a few people that don't want to get vaccinated, but I don't think they make up a substantial number. I think most people out there want to get vaccinated. The people that don't mainly be about 5%. So I think you're right, maybe 90% is a good aiming point and probably a mark of success, and maybe by then you have something called almost herd immunity. Yeah, and you see now, and I do see it around uh, Geelong. I mean, people are starting to uh, perhaps be less serious about wearing masks and uh, obviously there's lots of groupings going on that we don't know about. The grand final obviously was um, bad for transmission. Obviously there was uh, a number of uh, sort of after grand final parties that helped spread the transmission. Uh, we have problems in Victoria, more so perhaps than in Queensland. We have, you know, high ethnic populations that uh, do require uh, a lot of shepherding in getting them vaccinated. And of course, there's the religious issues and the health issues about why they can't get vaccinated. Um, so we do look to those leaders of those communities to continually to push their communities to get vaccinated. Um, and, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll reach those targets by never and we'll get some normality back and business can start planning um, for, you know, leading up to Christmas next year. Well, very good to see you once again. We cover a lot of ground again today, which I think is always a good thing, and uh, we'll catch up in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks, Mitchell, and um, good luck to all your listeners out there for that, uh, that very important date, November 5th. Fingers crossed. Thank you very much, Simon Ramsey, their former MP for Western Victoria. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts.